0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre.
1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Eve Warburton, director of the ANU Indonesia Institute and a research fellow at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. Eve is the author of Resource Nationalism in Indonesia, Booms, Big Business and the State, published by Cornell University Press in 2023. Welcome Eve.
2: Hi Michelle, thanks so much for having me.
1: That's a pleasure. Eve, let's start with a quick explainer. In general terms, what is resource nationalism?
2: Yeah, well, so I guess starting with a bit of a caveat that there's quite a bit of debate in the literature on this topic, and it can depend a bit on your disciplinary lens, but sort of if we got down to the essence of the term. It's really all about ownership and benefit of resources. So it's a term that gets used to describe efforts, policy efforts, to restrict the ownership of and access to land and natural resource industries to those deemed national or local to a country. And at the same time, what these sorts of efforts and policies are doing is excluding or trying to exclude or to reduce the ownership and access to land and resources to those rendered or deemed foreign to the national group. So it's all about kind of reducing foreign ownership, reducing foreign benefit of natural resources and expanding the ownership and benefits that accrue to locals and nationals. And one of the key findings of of some of the early literature on resource nationalism is that you get these sorts of policy efforts like capping foreign ownership or foreign investment in a resource project, things like this. You get an increase in the sort of intensity of and then the number of these sorts of policy efforts when commodity prices are high and then when prices cool you get a fading of these sorts of policy efforts. So it sort of was widely seen or conventionally seen as a kind of epiphenomenal trend just tied to commodity prices. And the logic was that high prices drive state actors to try to seek more access to the rents being enjoyed by foreign companies during a boom or foreign actors during a boom. And then low prices, on the other hand, drive state actors to try and seek out or attract more foreign investment because the state's revenues tend to dwindle during a commodity downturn. So it's historically been viewed as this trend that is contingent upon prices or this exogenous sort of price force. Yeah, so that's sort of in a nutshell, you know, what resource nationalism is all about. Again, with that caveat that depending on your discipline, depending on what your sort of lens is, you might have sort of differences around the edges, but that's kind of fundamentally what it's all about. How did you get interested in this topic? Like many PhDs, the topic that ended up being my thesis topic was not the topic that I started with. So when I was actually first accepted to do my PhD at ANU, I was intending to write a thesis about the privatization ownership of water resources. I'd just come out of a master's degree where I'd studied business and human rights and the right to water, and I was really interested in that. But then when I began my thesis in 2014 and 2015 in Indonesia, there was just a lot of really interesting stuff going on, on the ground. Indonesia was just like many other resource rich countries just sort of coming out of this sort of long and really lucrative commodities boom. So basically from sort of the early 2000s till about 2013, there was a global commodity boom. Prices of commodities like oil and coal and minerals as well, you know, had been high for most of the past decade. So it was coming out of this boom and, There was a lot of foreign press interest in, or hype even, about these efforts that the government had been engaging in for a couple of years to try to get much more out of its foreign mining sector in particular. So there was a lot of coverage of government efforts to renegotiate a bunch of foreign mining contracts, big foreign mining contracts, to force them to divest shares and majority shares to local companies. Uh, It was getting a lot of coverage in local and international press. Um, Indonesia was sort of being described as this kind of really extreme case of resource nationalism compared to other resource-rich countries as well. And 2014 was also the year of a really big and important presidential election. One of the candidates, Prabowo Subianto, anyone who's listening who knows Indonesian politics will know that name very well. You know, his campaign in 2014 in particular, it was remarkable for the way in which he used this really hyper-nationalist rhetoric. Uh, he spoke a lot about foreign domination of Indonesia's resources. And we hadn't really seen that kind of aggressive nationalist rhetoric used in political campaigns before. So it was just becoming this really kind of fascinating issue, this kind of understanding, you know, why was resource nationalism so especially intense in Indonesia as the boom was ending, right? And so Basically what I could see was this puzzle emerging and that's what we want as political scientists. We want to try, you know, when you're starting out your PhD, you're trying to find this sort of an interesting angle and interesting puzzle to grapple with. And I could see that in Indonesia, when it came to this trend of resource nationalism, there are a couple of really interesting puzzles. So I started with describing to you uh, what resource nationalism is and, and how we have conventionally sort of understood why it emerges at particular times, why it increases and fades at particular times, this idea that it's sort of tied to commodity prices. Well, in Indonesia we could see that even as commodity prices were starting to drop off, nationalist mobilisation on the part of the state and other act as well, which we can talk about later, but it was actually getting more intense. So that kind of idea that nationalism is tied pretty tightly to prices, it didn't really seem to have traction in the Indonesian case at that point in time. And that was one puzzle that you're getting, this kind of persistent form of, of resource nationalism in the mining sector in particular. But then the more I looked at the case, the more I was there on the ground, I was sort of asking questions about, well, why aren't we getting that kind of level of nationalist mobilisation and nationalist policymaking in the palm oil or the plantation sector, for example. You know, plantations are often the target of sort of protectionist and nationalist mobilisation countries all around the world. But, yeah, you know, I wasn't seeing something that was especially comparable in the plantation sector in Indonesia. And so there was this kind of, I could see this interesting puzzle that there was a lot of ind- Indonesia's reputation internationally for being intensely nationalist in its mining sector was fascinating, especially because the boom was ending. But then I was also seeing this kind of cross-sectoral variation that was interesting, I think, to kind of sink my teeth into. So that was really what was piquing my interest at the time. And I'm still interested in this question of ownership of water resources in Indonesia, but I just became more interested and more excited to learn about resource nationalism. And in terms of these really lucrative, important export-oriented industries like mining, oil, plantations, and I also felt like that Matters globally as well because Indonesia, for listeners who might not be that familiar with Indonesia's economy, even though it has a very diverse economy, its export oriented economy does remain very reliant on natural resources and on natural commodities and land based resources. So, and in terms of the role that it plays in international markets as well, you know, Indonesia is one of the most important and largest exporters of coal, minerals, and palm oil onto international markets. So You know, it was interesting for a whole range of reasons to me.
1: Come back to this question of unevenness. But before that, I'd like to talk about the anecdote that you start the book with, which is about Newmont Mining's decision to close its Indonesian operations. What happened and why is it so emblematic of Indonesia's most recent uh, wave of resource nationalism?
2: Yeah, sure. So I, I opened the book with this, yeah, as you say, this story of Newmont Mining. And it was sort of a real household name in Indonesia for decades because it owned the Batu Hijo gold and copper mine on Sumbawa Island and it had mined there for decades and it's one of the countries, it's the second largest gold and copper mine after the Freeport mine. And the government and the company had been trying for, in the lead up to sort of 2016, the government and the company had been trying for several years to negotiate a price for the shares that it was obliged to divest according to its contract. But it's been a problem for not just Newmont, but for other foreign companies over the last 20 years is really trying to get to a, what's considered a fair price by all parties when they have to start divesting their shares. So that was controversial. But then at the same time, these negotiations over divestment were taking place against the backdrop of government efforts to sort of force, try to force copper and gold companies to build smelting facilities, basically enabling a value adding process, the processing of gold and copper onshore before exporting these commodities abroad. And you know, companies don't want to do that, it's very expensive. So the government was sort of trying to force Newmont, both in terms of its contract and in terms of investing in smelting. And the government was continually sort of threatening to ban the export of gold and copper. So it was a really tense, fraught set of negotiations. And eventually the company decided to not just sell more than what it was contractually obliged to sell and to sell out completely. And it sold its shares to a local oil baron, Arifin Panigoro from Medco, one of the in Indonesia's most successful oil, upstream oil companies, basically now diversifying into mineral extraction. And the case was a good one, I thought, to open the book with because, first of all, it was a contentious case. People might have heard about it. I thought it would be a nice hook to kind of grab readers' attention. But yes, as you indicate, Michelle, it was also reflective of a wider trend in this sector, in the mining sector. And that's a trend towards, under an immense amount of pressure, divestment of foreign assets in the mining sector and the entry into it or expansion of local private businesses into the upstream mining sector. So Indonesian tycoons and conglomerates over the past 20 years, and especially over the past 10 years, have really at a pace expanded into the upstream of the extractive mining sector. So the extractive sectors. And what the book shows is that by the time I finished writing it over a year ago now, pretty much all of the country's major mining projects in coal mining but also in precious mineral mining, household names that we're kind of used to hearing about if you read about it or you're interested in Indonesia's mining sector. Most of those big players have opted out or have had to share, sell down their majority of their shares and so that Indonesian companies are now the biggest players, certainly in the coal mining sector, increasingly in the mineral mining sector and increasingly also in the oil sector. And a lot of, especially when it comes to coal and mineral mining, A lot of these actors, the local actors who have been taking over these projects, are private companies. And this is really a trend that we've never seen in Indonesians' long history of extractivism. You know, a history that obviously was dominated by the, the colonial Dutch companies, colonial era Dutch companies, and then Anglo American companies throughout the New Order. But now it's really, and what the book is about is sort of the rise of domestic companies in these sectors, in these extractive sectors.
1: One of the advantages of a study taking a few years is that you actually get to reflect on longer-term trends. And in the book, wave of resource nationalism that you studies has actually been far more successful than observers thought it would be when you started. What explains this unexpected success? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that it would might be helpful to kind of share one of the anecdotes I share in the first chapter, because I think it sort of captures a lot of the, as you pointed to, this sort of skepticism that a lot of foreign observers had about Indonesia's attempts to, about resource nationalism and Indonesia's attempts to assert more control and more ownership over its resources. So when I first sort of arrived to do my fieldwork in 2014, I have this very strong memory of speaking to a kind of pretty seasoned foreign journalist who'd been working on covering all these contract negotiations and covering these more nationalist sets of regulations and laws over the past few years. And he basically said, look, the boom is over and all these really sort of short-term and rent-seeking ideas and policies that have been coming from the state over the past few years, that'll all come to an end. People will come to their senses basically as the commodity boom ends, so repeating that conventional explanation for resource nationalism. But, of course, we know now that didn't happen and this wave of resource nationalism, and we're talking particularly here about the mining sector, is different to previous waves of resource nationalism because it's important to point out for listeners too that historically throughout the New Order – there were also you know, it's historians of Indonesia's economy have pointed to this sort of pendulum swing that used to take place during the New Order, that during booms you'd get more protectionist sort of sets of economic policies and during downturns, usually oil booms, right, oil booms and oil downturns, more liberal, open sets of economic policies and investment policies are welcoming of foreign investment. So historically Indonesia has fit that pattern as well. But yes, this most recent wave of nationalism, especially in the mining sector, has been different. And basically the crux of the argument that I put forward in the book is that this is because domestic business has changed. And I trace the success or the persistence rather, I guess, is a better way to put it because it's success. It depends on how you measure success of a particular policy, but certainly the persistence of nationalist intervention and nationalist policies in the mining sector. I trace that back to the rise of these local extractive business interests. Because for the longest time, and basically since the colonial era and the early post independence years through to the end of the New Order, Indonesian private capital couldn't really make inroads into the extractive sectors, into the upstream extractive sectors. Mineral mining, oil and gas, these are two these are two really capital intensive Complex technology is required. Huge investments are required. And that was beyond the means of most of Indonesia's business community for most of decades. Coal is a little easier to access, but still through most of the new order, big coal mines, big coal mining contracts were primarily given to foreign companies with smaller ones given to some domestic business interests. So that's sort of the history of ownership in a nutshell, where And Indonesian business interests really weren't involved in the upstream of these these extractive sectors. They just sort of couldn't be. But at the turn of the century, after the Asian financial crisis of 97, 98, there's a real shift. And there's multiple reasons for this shift, but it's a shift that marks the rise of Indonesian business interests in the upstream mining sector. So first of all, coal prices are falling. This is a period of Indonesia's economically and politically it's very unstable so huge financial crisis it motivates widespread protests suharto who'd been ruling indonesia for over 3 decades steps down there's a lot of political instability and uncertainty so coal prices are falling investors are worried about stability in indonesia a few of these coal, of existing coal contracts are up for divestment as well and foreign companies just aren't as interested in the indonesian market at this point in time for these sorts of reasons so then there's an opportunity this opportunity comes and a whole bunch of indonesian business people who are reeling from the crisis as well from the economic crisis can find a cheap way in to the coal mining sector and so and state owned enterprises are in no condition at this point in time after the crisis to be entering into this sector so you get a series of domestic takeovers in the early 2000s in the coal sector And then there's this fortuitous boom in coal prices. And so this is when you start to see the rise of Indonesian coal barons. They start to to sort of emerge as these sort of giants in the sector, and then they expand their interest into other parts of the mining sector as well. And so you end up with a situation where tycoons now have some of the largest coal deposits and mining deposits in their hands. They start to enjoy soaring profits, and they also start to increase their policy influence as a result. And people who know Indonesia's domestic politics kind of know parts of this story quite well because oligarchs like Abu al-Bakri was of course he was the head of the Chamber of Commerce at this time he went on to become the chair of Golkar one of Indonesia's most important largest political parties the political machine of the previous autocratic president Suharto and you know he enjoyed immense influence because of his the money he was making off the coal sector so you're getting the rise of these coal magnates these mining magnates and you're also getting some of these characters more and more heavily involved in politics as well and the democratic politics. And this is a kind of a fusing of sort of business and state interests in this sector. And so the rise of these extractive giants, I think, helps explain why resource nationalism in the 21st century it doesn't just fade because it's not just about a temporary ambition of state actors in response to prices, but it's about the preferences of major domestic extractive interests. And the rise of these extractive interests and their relationship with the state helps explain why resource nationalism in this sector has been so much more persistent than anyone expected at the outset and why it's been much more persistent than at any other time in Indonesian history. Sorry, that was a very, very sort of fast (laughs) whirlwind tour of Indonesia's extractive history. But hopefully that was clear enough to explain this part of the book's argument.
1: Thanks a lot for that, Eve. But of course you also deal with the plantation sector in the book and as you mentioned before, there was quite a lot of unevenness in its impact in these two sectors. Can you tell us a bit about how resource nationalism played out in the plantation sector?
2: Yeah, sure. This was, I mean, this is really interesting to me because I started thinking about the plantation sector and this is another extremely important export industry for Indonesia. Indonesia exports huge amounts of crude palm oil. It's the number one exporter of crude palm oil in global markets with Malaysia very close behind. This is what made the case so interesting to compare to mining because around the same time, so in 2014, the parliament and the government were negotiating a new plantation law, the 2014 plantation law, And there were proposals put forward by parliament that were indeed nationalist in orientation. And there was some interest, well, a lot of interest, in fact, from the foreign press and foreign business community about this proposal. And the proposal was to cap ownership of plantations in Indonesia, foreign ownership of plantations in Indonesia at 30%. That's quite dramatic because it was at night, the rule said that 95% of a plantation can be foreign owned or a plantation company can be foreign owned so it was quite a, a radical proposal but it was sort of all came to it kind of fizzled very quickly bit of hype a bit of sort of concern in the media but it came it very quietly just sort of went away when the law was brought in when the law was signed in the draft law was signed into law and that question of why I would sort of ask people who were in the industry I would ask other journalists who were covering it I would say why you know why did it go away this is it seems like it would sort of be something that might have the same sort of traction as the nationalist interventions being introduced to the mining sector. And no one actually had a very good answer. And some people said, oh, well, just plantations are different. But that's not a very satisfying answer if one knows the history of ownership in Indonesia's plantation sector because, you know, for much of the following the nationalisations of the early post-independence period when Indonesia's plantations, which were formerly majority Dutch owned and foreign owned, were then nationalized by Sukarno. And then the plantations remained for the most part in local hands for much of the New Order period as well. And there were attempts in the late New Order period by Suharto to open up ownership of palm oil in particular and to introduce or to open up opportunities for Malaysian capital. But those attempts were resisted and opposed very strongly by local business interests in the plantations and in the palm oil sector, to the point that Suharto even backed down in the late 90s. So uh, plantations are often the target of nationalist mobilisation in countries all around the world. You know, Australia is a country where farmland and plantation land is more protected than the mining sector. So, you know, this was a really interesting puzzle to me, why these days, you know, why in the contemporary period Attempts to cap foreign ownership would fail. And I should also just to kind of circle back a little bit, the, the reason that we went from kind of protected plantations industries for much of the new water to very, very open, uh, liberalized an investment regime in the plantation sector in the democratic period, that was all about the, what the IMF did in the wake of the Asian financial crisis. So some of people would be very familiar with this history as well. But essentially, in the wake of the crisis, when Indonesia was desperate for loans from the IMF, the IMF you know, presented a series of conditions, of economic conditions that Indonesia, the Indonesian government would have to abide by if it wanted access to IMF loans. And those conditions were obviously, unsurprisingly, all about liberalizing different sectors, including plantations. Um, and that's when the law on, around foreign ownership of plantations changed was opened up almost completely, 95%, and it's never changed since, despite these proposals to kind of cap foreign ownership. And again, to understand this, this difference between plantations and mining, what I argue in the book is that we need to have a deep investigation of how domestic business has changed and evolved in this sector and and how business owner, the domestic businesses in this sector demand different things of the state. And the focus on the main proposition that I put forward in the book because when we're talking about resource nationalism in comparative terms the scholarship is really focused on why different sorts of states do different things in the context of a boom so why some countries are more nationalist than others but what I argue here is that this kind of within-country variation this cross-sector variation is really interesting and important. And it's best explained by looking at, an in the Indonesian case, it's best explained by looking at the preferences of local capital. And in the palm oil sector, big local capital wasn't interested in a protectionist set of regulations. In fact, it was thriving under these sorts of liberal open investment rules. Um, and I can go into more about that now, or we can talk about in a moment. Oh, go ahead. Basically, the policy, this 30% policy failed after a swift campaign by the industry association, the Palm Oil Industry Association, known as Gupke. So Gupke was very concerned about this idea of suddenly capping foreign ownership in the sector. Gupke represents... All the companies that operate in the palm oil sector, but it's widely seen as representing the interests of some of the biggest palm oil companies. And essentially Guppy communicated to the government this idea that a 30%, any kind of sort of nationalist protectionist set of regulations was incredibly risky, that it would put pressure on land prices, it would put pressure on exports, you'd see a reduction in exports because you would suddenly have these very big, efficient, foreign-based companies taken out of the market or greatly reduced in terms of their ownership, and that for a commodity that was so important to the state in terms of foreign exchange, it was just all too risky. And most importantly, in my interviews with Gupki, what they also pointed to was that in this industry, or in this sector or rather, ownership is really murky. So it's actually really difficult to work out which companies are foreign owned and which ones aren't. And that was what sort of came out in a lot of the interviews about how the sector is structured as well. Because even though we think of some of the biggest palm oil companies in Indonesia and they're Owned by Indonesians, whether it's Wilma, it's set up by an Indonesian business person and a Malaysian business person. Sinarmas, Salim, these are like household names when it comes to Indonesia's uh, tycoon, the conglomerates that play such an important role across a range of sectors in Indonesia. But the sector, their companies are domiciled in Singapore. So the idea that what would happen if we if you capped foreign investment, would these sorts of companies be considered foreign? And then, of course, there are some really big major foreign players as well. So the fact that the kind of the local business association was opposed from the beginning and very swiftly went in and convinced the Udeo government that this was a bad idea and the UDO government, even though its ministry, its agricultural ministry had been pro the cap, it really quickly backed down. So, and I think that that's largely a function of the fact that the most structurally powerful, biggest palm oil interests were not interested in protectionism, were not interested in foreign caps in the same way that the domestic mining magnates were interested in them. They didn't see it as an opportunity for their businesses, rather they saw it as a risk. And I think that crux of the argument of when we're trying to understand the differences between these two sectors.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: This really speaks to the um, fundamental role that large international businesses have played in this story. And as you've already hinted at, the conflict and competition are important parts of this story. Can you give us a specific example of how that played out?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, resource nationalism is fundamentally about competition, right? It's about who gets to own a benefit. From lucrative industries that rely on land and natural commodities, and it's always going to be about conflict and competition for resources. You know, land is obviously finite; doesn't go forever. It's it's finite, and the competition for who gets to own land that can be the source of generations of wealth. There's intense conflict over land throughout Indonesia's outer islands, where resource rich islands. And then, of course, coal and minerals are non-renewable and oil are non-renewable, so there's a time horizon for these resources too. So it's always going to be about competition and conflict. But I think that the book itself, the way the, the comparative design of the book was based around comparing the process of three different debates around three different nationalist proposals in three different sectors with three different pieces of legislation. And I think the probably the most illustrative example of how competition and conflict shaped a legislative outcome probably comes from the oil and gas industry so in the oil and gas industry so we had just to sort of recap for listeners the book is about nationalist variation where we had really strong nationalist outcomes in the mining sector a sort of an absence of nationalist outcomes in the palm oil sector and in the oil and gas sector was this sort of weird case of legislative stagnation when, when sort of nothing really happened and what I mean by that is that there was debate about revising the 2001 oil and gas law. It was on the priority list for the parliament to to revise this law. It was for basically 10 years. In fact, today it is still, I think, maybe it's not on the Prolegnas anymore, but it's basically never happened. Even though legislators and the government were trying to revise this law with a whole bunch of nationalist agendas in mind, essentially it went nowhere and it went nowhere because different sorts of interest groups, different people and sections of the ministry, the sections of parliament, sections of the business community just could not agree on the terms, on new terms of extraction and new terms of ownership in the oil and gas sector. Now, the key issue here was about how the law or what the extent to which the law should reinstate some of the privileges that the state-owned enterprise, Pertamina, used to enjoy under the new order. So, Again, in the wake of the Asian financial crisis, under strong pressure from the IMF and other international lenders, the government was forced to restructure its oil and gas industry from one that was very much dominated by Pertamina, where the state-owned enterprise played both the kind of regulatory role, so it was a regulator of the industry, all the foreign companies had to engage in contracts with Pertamina, but it was also a player in the industry, so very obvious conflict of interest there. After 2001, Pertamina no longer had a regulatory role. It was just an oil and gas company. And almost immediately, you had really strong opposition from parliamentarians, Pertamina's leadership, people within parliament, just saying that this is not fair and that a state owned company should get privileges. And it will never, Pertamina will never be able to compete with other state owned oil and gas companies, Petronas, Petrobras, Malaysia and Brazil's big state-owned companies, they will never be able to compete with them if it's not given special privileges. And the main privilege that Pertamina wanted was a right of first refusal to all expiring foreign oil and gas contracts, which means that basically it's up to Pertamina if it wants a contract or not, and if it doesn't want it, it will go up for tender, but if it wants it, it gets it. And that's what it wanted. It wanted that to be sort of written into law. And that what I really noticed was, you know, just what I observed in my interviews was that this was a change to the law that was really being promoted and really pushed by sections of Pratamina, but other sections of Portamina and the Ministry for Energy and Mineral Resources were really opposed to it. You know, they wanted the industry to be competitive. They wanted a growing, this is important too, a growing number of domestic private sector interests in the upstream sector to have an equal opportunity to these contracts. And they're also very, very worried about what was Indonesia's dwindling oil and gas sector. Oil in Indonesia was once a really big, powerful player in Asia during the new order. It's no longer the case. Indonesia doesn't have much oil left production, where the oil now, really, it's, it's all offshore. Oil and gas projects are offshore where they're more complicated and more expensive. and you know, so dwindling supply, rising demand for oil domestically, this wasn't the context where it was a good idea to have these sorts of more nationalist, more pro Pertamina policies. So, this led to so much conflict and competition between domestic players, Pertamina, policymakers in the ministry that debate over the law essentially went nowhere for 15 years. There was just regulatory uncertainty. And so people kept talking about in all the conferences I would go to for the oil and gas sector. Can we get some certainty here? No, we can't because no one could agree on basically the new terms of extraction for the oil and gas sector. So that's probably one of the best examples of how competition and conflict can lead to just complete stagnation. And regulatory ambiguity.
1: It's an interesting insight into conflict and competition within the state rather than the state being sort of assumed to be this big unitary actor. But to change tack a bit, of course, personally, I'm very interested in how social activists have participated in and responded to resource nationalism. You say in the book that they're deeply ambivalent about it?
2: Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So I think when I first started this project, I was reading a lot about resource nationalism in parts of South and Latin America. And in those countries, you often read about social movements, indigenous rights communities, their organizations are often the drivers of nationalist pressure that's being put on the government to restrict foreign companies, to change the rules of extraction. A lot of it's coming from social movement activists. And so I sort of when I first started my project, I thought this might be more of that kind of story in Indonesia too. But it wasn't. If you think about NGOs that are involved in the resource sectors in Indonesia, they're sort of in kind of lo- loosely characterize them in, in two ways. So those NGOs that are primarily concerned with making sure companies do the right thing. So companies stick to the environmental rules and regulations, that they pay their taxes and that they basically do a good job um, oriented towards making sure the sector is fair and that companies pay their taxes and the distributional sort of outcome from these sectors is ideal. And then there's activists who are essentially, and, and for ideological reasons too, basically opposed to the mining sector and the palm oil sector, that they see these sectors as root cause of land degradation, of climate change obviously, that these sectors Poisonous and toxic for the land, the entire set, and that these sectors themselves have driven communities off their land. So they're kind of more opposed to the sector in general. I'm thinking here of like Jatam, Jadingan Advocacy Tambang Indonesia, so the Indonesian Mining Advocacy Network, Walhi, Greenpeace, you know, these really sort of strongly environmental um, activists. And for these activists in particular, for these NGOs, the language of resource nationalism doesn't help with their campaign because the target of their campaigns is often these big coal tycoons and oil barons and palm oil tycoons, you know, these domestically owned. And so the language of nationalism, they think, has basically been, you know, in many ways either co-opted or it's used by state actors and it's used by private sector actors, big private actors as well who are close to the state, such that they don't find it a useful way of trying to advocate or trying to promote their agenda as environmental activists, as activists who are trying to defend the rights of communities around sites of extraction. Other sort of NGOs might use a language a bit around distributional fairness. They're the ones that tend to work with the sector, but for those social activists who are very opposed to the sector and the effects that the sector has on the environment and on local communities, resource nationalism, for them, they used to describe it as sort of a shallow nationalism, that it's driven by private, particularistic interests these sorts of interests are the problem. These are the problem with the sector themselves and they are the target of these NGOs campaigns. And I think the book itself is much more about these policy changes. It's about why you get nationalist outcomes in some sectors and not others. And to the extent that I was asking that research question, I necessarily ended up focusing more on the role that the business has played. And they're the ones that are using, business and state actors are the ones that are kind of framing these policies in nationalist terms. Whereas for activists, It wasn't a useful framing device.
1: In focusing very much on that business perspective, you've made a really conscious effort to bring the Resource Nationalism Scholarship into conversation with the broader political economy literature on business power. What do you see as the benefits of this approach?
2: Well, first of all, I think it's important to sort of say that political economy literature on resource nationalism, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it tends to characterise resource nationalism as this sort of zero sum game between on the one hand the host state and the other hand foreign business interests. And so I think when I was looking at the Indonesian case what I really wanted to do was to bring these domestic business actors into the foreground of the story of resource nationalism. And that's what this literature on business power really does. It does two things I think it it helps explain why the state might pursue different approaches to foreign resource firms in different sectors which I think the other kind of older political economy frameworks don't necessarily do. And so that can help us with the explaining that nationalist variation that sort of drives the book. But it also, I think, is useful for people who, or for scholars of Indonesia, because it helps us to bring a bit more depth, I think, to our analysis of how wealthy economic actors shape politics and policy in Indonesia. I mean, I think one of the really dominant streams of thought and theories on contemporary Indonesian politics is the oligarchy theory. You know, it's basically that wealthy economic actors whose primary agenda is wealth defence, that they have basically infiltrated the state and they essentially control and determine political and economic outcomes as well. But I think what the business power literature does is it, it sort of challenges us to kind of dig deeper beyond that characterization of just wealthy Oligarchs basically dominating the political scene because it, it says to us: well, actually, wealthy economic actors don't all want the same thing; that they can want different sorts of things. They can take very different approaches to getting what they want through or with state actors, and that sometimes these actors don't get what they want. And so, what the business, the literature on business power does, is it problematizes. The uses of business power, the modes of business power, why they get some things and not others. And so I think it's this, a useful set of analytic tools to sort of distinguish between different sorts of business actors. And it forces us to ask what they want and how they go about getting what they want. And just to come back to sort of the empirical picture that I was painting before of the differences between the major business, domestic business interests in palm oil and mining. And of course, these are big sweeping sort of generalizations as exceptions to these rules. But I think. What perhaps the point I didn't make before is that big palm oil companies, they tend to be different in the structure of their business in the sense that they are more international. They tend to be a bit more internationalized. They tend to have a slightly more international outward looking sort of footprint. And what the business power literature does is it looks at the structure and the ownership and the people who are behind companies and says that those sorts of things, the size of a company, how diversified it is, how international, and it says that these sorts of characteristics of a company can help us understand how they relate to the state and what they want from the state. And I found that really useful in trying to unpack why we have these sorts of different kind of patterns of lobbying and different sorts of interests coming from these two really major export-oriented sectors. And for Indonesianists, I think it's also useful because it takes these histories of capital accumulation in these two different sectors, one dominated by more inward-oriented companies in the mining sector and one dominated by more internationally-oriented companies in the palm oil sector. And it helps us to sort of take what we know about the Indonesian history of capital accumulation but then also gives us a comparative analytical language with which to understand what that means for policy outcomes and for resource nationalism specifically.
1: I do think, I agree absolutely, this is an incredibly important contribution to the debates around Indonesian political economy which have, as you've so as you've made clear, have been so dominated by theories of oligarchy in ways that often don't interrogate these nuances and how they play out. And I just want to stick to this this theme of in-country comparison, which really frames your book. In methodological terms, how did you go about marshalling the evidence required to systematically compare these sectors?
2: Ah, this reminds me of that very early part of the design proposal of my thesis. So, Yeah. So basically this was, I set this up as, as I've said before that, you know, I felt like the literature on resource nationalism was spending so much time comparing across states, but when there's variation within states and at the sector level that can't be explained with the existing sort of dominant theories of variation when it came to resource nationalism. So what I did was I said, okay, we have these three sectors and I did a sort of careful comparison of these three sectors. And I said, well, these three sectors, oil oil and gas, palm oil and mining. There are differences between them, but there are also key similarities that would lead us to expect that under boom conditions, we should see similar sorts of nationalist mobilization and outcomes across these three sectors. That's sort of the premise of the comparison, but then we have these varied outcomes. And so what I did was I structured the comparison of these three sectors around three different pieces of legislation That were the target of nationalist, where there were nationalist proposals put forward, but then when you see these, as I described earlier, you see these different sorts of outcomes. So in the mining sector, there was a change to the law, the 2009 mining law, and a whole set of uh, regulations associated with that law in the in the years that followed. And I studied, you know, why we saw so much sort of nationalist mobilisation and successful nationalist policy outcomes in the mining sector with what happened with the 2014 plantations law, where that cap basically fails, it goes away. And then I compare it with that sort of never ending debate over how to change the 2001 oil and gas law. So these three pieces of legislation, and I looked at the, the different actors that were involved in promoting the nationalist proposals, the actors involved in opposing or problematizing or challenging those nationalist proposals. And basically, it was a really deep qualitative dive into the process of lawmaking. And it was through that Pros that qualitative sort of very heavily interview-based section of the research project that I emerged with these conclusions about the structure and the ownership of the sectors and what different sorts of businesses wanted. And then I was really fortunate while I was sort of trying to turn the PhD into a book, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to work on a survey of business people in Indonesia. Very rare to be able to do that sort of a survey that gave me the opportunity to basically check using a representative survey of the business community where it included 180 mining and plantation companies or agricultural companies. And I could test the sorts of preferences and the sorts of ideas that are coming out of my interviews. Does it hold when I do a representative survey? And those results were really fascinating and did really gel with the qualitative story that I got from these interviews about the lawmaking process, about nationalist mobilization in the lawmaking process. So
1: that must have been quite a relief.
2: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Eve, one last question, and it's another methodological one. I'm sure our listeners would be interested in hearing how you got access to such high level government officials and business people, but also what strategies you used to get them to talk to you openly.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And then, I mean, I guess I have two answers. The first one is just persistence. I mean, I sort of, for the thesis, the thesis made up about 160 interviews. And most of those aren't with very, very high level, like the directors of Sinarmas. I didn't get access to those sorts of people, but the industry associations are very happy to talk to a foreign researcher. In fact, often these industry associations talk to foreign investors, All they're talking and representing foreign investors as well. So, and they're used to talking to media, they're used to talking to people. So I, pretty good access to, Medium-sized businesses, some of the big eventually over the years when I would kind of turn up to a lot of industry events, my face was more familiar. And then I got access to some of the much bigger companies, to their, you know, public communications office and then to some of the more senior people as well. But a lot of it was about getting to know the industries themselves, especially for the first couple of years when I was a very green PhD student, really just learning about these industries myself. So a lot of industry events, a lot of discussions with industry association representatives. It's interesting that what I notice, and this I think rings true, well, I know that a lot of other researchers working in this space could relate, that it's very hard actually to penetrate the big palm oil companies. They're much more sensitive to foreign researchers and foreign journalists because the sector itself is basically always in a battle with environmental NGOs international environmental campaigns target palm oil right so they feel they have a lot to lose I think whereas the coal mining industry doesn't even though we you know in Australia and we think about it and we do know it's a very dirty industry in Indonesia it's not really threatened by international campaigns and it has a lot of support from the government and coal-fired power you know it's less, it's actually less contentious for them and I found middle-sized coal companies the coal mining association were actually quite you know, relatively easy to access but in terms of Indonesia's policymakers and government people I spent a lot of time with parliamentarians and especially in the first year and government folks I think that you probably find this as well Michelle Indonesian it's a nice place to do research <laughs> it's people really like to have a chat and I still am surprised at the that people are in very senior positions or, or, or often you know used to be in very senior positions are just willing to give you their time. You know, Indonesians are very generous with, with their time, can potentially compared to senior members of government and senior members of business associations in other countries, certainly as I've heard from colleagues who work in other parts of Asia. So I think I'm just really fortunate this is, you know, Indonesia is the country where I love to spend time because um, Indonesians are relatively generous, I think, with their time, no matter where they are in government or politics or business. And I mean, I think that, I guess for you know perhaps other PhD students who might be listening to this and interested in this sort of work, I think it's all about casting your net really, really wide as well because we're setting realistic expectations. So I just spoke to a lot of people and eventually, as I said, people get to know you and what you're interested in. And I ended up having a, a series of informants who I met with many, many times and that's how you build up trust. And that's how you get more and more information that you perhaps wouldn't have been able to get if you were just interviewing one person for the first time. And then once you if you're working on a topic for this many years, uh, ministers come and go, director generals come and go, and once they leave office, they're very happy to come and talk to you <laughs> about their experiences when they're no longer in that position. So I guess it's a combination of all those sorts of factors that, that helped me to, to get access. But, yeah, There's still a lot of companies out there that I didn't get to interview that I would love to interview, but we're still working on that.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great advice for um, emerging scholars. Thanks, Eve, so much for your insights into Indonesia's political economy and the importance of resource nationalism within it. I'm sure our listeners are going to go away with a lot to reflect on. But before we wrap up, do you want to tell us a bit about what you're working on now?
2: Oh sure, yes. I mean I'm working on a couple of things, but I guess the project that I'm most excited about and it does in some ways sort of flow on from this book is a project on the rise of business people politicians in Indonesia. So it's a project that formed the basis of a DECRA application. By the time this goes out live to the public, we may know whether I got it or not. (laughs) But I'm still, you know, whether I get that or not, I'm I am working on this project which examines the increasing number of politicians in Indonesia, both in parliament and in the ministry at the cabinet level, that have a background as a business person, as a director or an owner of a business. And this is a trend that we've seen in other countries around the world. And I'm interested in asking not just, you know, what forces explain this change in the composition of Indonesia of Indonesia's ruling elite, but I'm really interested in differences, like why some regions of Indonesia at the local level have a much higher proportion of business people as becoming politicians choosing to enter the world of politics In other regions we, we have a, that trend is is less pronounced and i mentioned in what they do with their power once they get into office as well you know they kind of there's lots of theories out there about business people kind of protecting certain industries protecting their businesses but there's also a lot of evidence that says well they're quite good at certain types of policy making and they could be sort of responding to a particular need or a particular demand from the Indonesian voting public as well so again, it's sort of, it draws on that literature on business power that we were talking about earlier. And it also kind of connects to a literature on representation, kind of like who are the people who get voted into office in, in a democratic country like Indonesia? How different are they from the rest of the population? And when they're all coming from a particular sort of occupational class, you know, what does that do to policymaking? So I'm really excited about it. So I, I hope I get the deco, but even if I don't, I'll find a way to work on it. <laughs> and that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing.
1: It sounds like a fantastic project. But today, let me thank you for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss resource nationalism in Indonesia, booms, big business, and the state. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to hundreds of other conversations about Southeast Asia related books on this channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or you can subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again before too long for another conversation about a new book in Southeast Asian Studies.